and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. This week, the Ringer is launching a new podcast feed called Boom Bust, a new hub for narrative podcasts documenting the rise and fall of companies, celebrities, and trends. Season one, hosted by our own Alyssa Bereznak, takes you through this spectacular journey of HQ trivia, the once $100 million industry-altering company turned disaster. Alyssa interviewed dozens of former employees, investors, journalists, and fans, bringing you the -the behind-the-scenes story of how HQ crumbled from within. Subscribe to Boom Bust HQ Trivia and check out the first two episodes out now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Believe it or not, everything isn't about you. Saying this, he hates your guts, McNulty. So, you know, if it was on you, I'd be the son of a bitch to say so. Man, I hope I'm not misspeaking here or misremembering to use a Roger Clemens word, but I think this is maybe the only episode or it's a it's got to be one of the few where we actually see the police like acting like the fucking police like really mm. being the police you know what i'm saying you're like oh shit they can't be the police um they can be cops yeah they can be cops and we are now on episode 11 the hunt in season one of the wire and uh to bring everybody up to speed uh Kim has been shot and so now appropriately there is a manhunt taking place hence why the the title of this episode is called The Hunt. But, yo, police be policing in this shit. <laughs> they do. They do. Yeah. They police it. That was my biggest takeaway. I was like, holy shit, is, is Jay Landsman actually, like, on a crime scene? Like, doing something mm-hmm. that is constructive? Right. I, I mean, I I didn't even know what to, to, to do with all this thing. Rawls, like, behave like a human being? Like, wh- what's happening here? Yeah, like, Kima, we talked a little bit about Kima and how she was one of the people that sort of ties uh, the police department together. And this one kind of shows the underlying importance to everybody of being police. It is the most stressful episode of the show. Um, it, It shows what happens when there's a glitch in the police matrix and everybody has to come together and like kind of how, what life is like behind that blue line when the tragedy happens. But also it's an episode where the Barksdale organization is dealing with that same stress because they know they're under increased scrutiny because a cop has been shot. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, And I couldn't help but think as I watched everything unfold, like, wow, if only the police treated every case as if the victim were a cop, just imagine how Mm. much safer and how much better that this world will be. Um, Because regardless of the differences, I mean, that's another thing about this, regardless of the differences, the infighting, the politics, when a police officer is is shot, um, everybody suddenly becomes unified. Everybody's all on board. All the politics, all the nonsense, all the bullshit, all of that kind of goes away. So in these moments, or at least in this moment, in this episode, you see a lot of people who previously in this season were not at their best actually being at their best. You're like, I didn't I didn't even know that was there. OK. Yeah, that's that's interesting, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, and I think it kind of spins it in a new direction. And it's part of the brilliance of David Simon and Ed Burns. I think they purposely created a series where there were no definitive good guys and no definitive bad guys. And 
some of the people that maybe you didn't couldn't stand before seeing them at their best in this episode, you're like, damn, okay, I really, I really fucking hate Rawls, but okay, in this episode, he's kind of not so bad. Yeah, I mean, it like there's a reason all of these people joined the police force. Like, there's a reason they decided to become cops. Either at one point they were idealistic, um, or they wanted to change things in their neighborhood, or maybe they hate bad guys. You know, there are people that just want to crack heads, of course. Um, but you start to see like everyone revert here. The cops revert back to maybe some of the purer reasons why they became police officers as they do something that human beings do, which is take care of one another. You see the cops taking care of one another. A lot of what's going on in the show prior to this were different factions of the police department really figuring out how they could get over on one another and get what they want out of one another. A little exploitation even within the department. In this episode, you see cops figuring out what they need to do to make sure everybody else is functioning and working on this. And this, at the same time, from the Barksdales, you see them revert, like sort of out of the cool, suave, um, we got everything under control, we changing up type of situation to probably the paranoid, triggered uh, dudes on the corner they were at first. Because now the trouble that they are in um, isn't cloudy and formless. It's got a form. A cop has been shot. They going on the news. They're from like, there's going to be retribution. And so their paranoia is through the roof. So as much as we've seen all of these characters develop, I like to look at this episode as seeing these characters go back to something, back to a starting block a little bit. Well, it's interesting that uh, Kima being shot brings the, the police force together. And on the bark sale side of things, it totally rips apart their organization. Because yeah. now, it, it, to your point about the paranoia, now it's forcing them to, um, you know, it's forcing them to kind of sort of tie up some loose ends. And you kind of see what they're about at the end of the day, as much as Avon is like, oh, family, family, this, family, this. Yeah, that family shit ain't is not going down. Um, I'll give everybody a brief recap of what happens here in episode 11 in The Hunt. You know, as we mentioned, Kima was shot. And so the police are now looking for her shooters. Uh, little man, Savino, and by extension, Weebay, who was, you know, the getaway and, and, and part of this whole ill-fated plan to kill Orlando and take the money. The cops, you know, they're turning over every stone, kicking every can. Uh, <laughs> Burrell uh, infamously says in this interview uh, that they need to get, quote, dope on the table, proving that even when a police officer is shot, and even though, as I just said a moment ago, that we see a lot of people kind of at their best, but bureaucracy is going to bureaucracy. And yeah. he still does not get the bigger picture that while dope on the table is a great photo op optic, this is not what this is about. It's deeper than that. So... They decide to conduct coordinated raids on the Barksdale stash houses. We get Scorched Earth McNulty and I Don't Give a Fuck McNulty at the same time, which is a beautiful combination. Uh, he loses it on a lot of people. Levy, Rhonda, um, also quite self-pitying. Uh, and it's he goes through all specters of emotion in this particular um, episode. And then, you know, Prez and Freeman they kind of remind me of, I don't know how much you used to watch law and order uh, SVU, but I watched it quite a bit. I even have like the, I even have a box set of law and order SVU. 
I was, wow. I know I was that dedicated. Still am. I mean, I'll still get sucked into a marathon easy. It, 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 it will take nothing. But in Law and Order SVU, Ice T and uh, his partner Munch, they solved all the crimes. It was them. Like they would just find something. They, you know, Stabler, Benson, good cops. Don't get me wrong. But leave it up to Munch and Ice T to find some piece of evidence, something that was overlooked, something they didn't consider. But like, oh damn, they solved it. So mm-hmm. Prez and Freeman are Munch and Ice T <laughs> for sure. And they unearth the biggest clues about the shooter. Uh, Prez figures out WeeBay's pager code. Freeman gets Savino's print off a can of slice. Yep. See what I'm saying? They doing all that. Orange slice. Uh, orange slice. What a, what a stereotypical drink to go down on, little man. <laughs> orange soda. You know we love some orange soda. So um, so that's kind of the the recap and, and, and where we are. So with all that being said, one of the prominent um, scenes that happens is I mentioned like we got Scorched Earth McNulty. So one of the people that McNulty loses on is Maury Levy. Mm. A police may die, Maury, and Savino was there. He comes in this afternoon. He takes the drug charge at least. Or what? Maury Levy, the attorney for the drug dealers uh, or attorney for the prominent ones in Baltimore. He is their guy. So we thought uh, we would be remiss if we did not take a deeper look at the scoundrel, the scumbag, who is Maury Levy. He's in the bucket of characters that they are what they are. And there's not, we see a lot of characters in The Wire evolve. And that doesn't mean it's always a good evolution. There is no evolution in Maury Levy this entire series. He ain't shit. And that's just what he is. Yeah. Maury Levy, I look at it as the principal at the high school. and. I look at it like that because, like, I graduated high school in 1998, and I thought that for some reason the four years that I was at McKinley High School in Baton Rouge were a unique, amazing four years, right? I had all of these experiences that had never been had before and all of these things that had never been done before, right? We were just – it was just – the way everyone thinks about high school, right? Until you go back and you visit your high school, maybe, like, five, 10 years later, and the principal's still there. And the teachers are still there. The students have changed, but the principals and all of those people, some of the teachers aren't there anymore. Some of them pass on. Some of them go to other schools. But a lot of them, you're just another memory that they've had over the course of their 30 or 40-year teaching career. And because of that, they have a certain way that they deal with you. They've seen everything from you before. They know everything that you're going to do. Every iteration of who you are, they've seen it. That's who Levy is. Uh, Bar Steel is not the first group of drug dealers that Levy has been around. And he's for certain, uh, if you, we all know, not the last group of drug dealers that he's he's representing all of these guys simultaneously. So all of these problems that they've had, the reason why Levy is so good at solving them is because he's seen them all before. That to me gives his character a very unique lens um, in wire history because he's almost, most times 
he's a calming presence, even though he is as sinister as any character. He orders a murder. Basically, in this episode, or or, or actually, no, is it in this episode or the is it next in one. cleaning up? It, right, mm-hmm. right, right. So, um, yeah, he orders, a, like, we're going to see in this season very soon, Levy basically order a murder. Uh, he is unscrupulous. He is uh, a, a, a legal expert. And in the greatest twist of irony, he's respectable. Like the way he's treated by the rest of the legal community, he's respectable. That's kind of what Jim, Jimmy loses it with. Jimmy loses it with the fact that this guy, who's potentially a bigger criminal than anyone involved in any of these things, gets treated with a degree of respectability that makes other lawyers afraid to cross him. So it's a very interesting character, a fantastic portrayal over the course that we see Levy. Um, And for me, watching the show, it wasn't a typical lawyer role in any way. It wasn't a typical... They never talked about Levy gouging them for money. They never talked about Levy doing uh, like underhanded things to necessarily take advantage of them. His job really was to use every legal um, advantage that he had to make sure that they stay clear of the feds. The funny thing is, oh, excuse me, that they stay clear of the police. The funny thing is, as low down as Levy is, if you commit a crime, you want Levy on your side. Absolutely. Like he's the guy that you want on your side. So uh, I think it's, I think he's one of the more fantastic and one of the more intriguing characters uh, in the history of the show. So I guess the best way I would sum him up is despicable, but necessary. And I like that he, his character um, that we see, as you said, that like he's somebody He's he knows he knows what their fate ultimately is going to be. His job is to hit them with as many billable hours until Mm -hmm. they finally meet that fate, be it death or jail. He knows one of those two options is coming. And so he's happy to continue his factory of drug dealers coming in and out of his office. And he will help Mm -hmm. them. He will help them ward off those two eventualities as long as possible. But the bottom line is he knows the shit is coming to an end. So he keeps it. He has, there is a grim reality that his character often uh, represents. Now, if you recall, a few episodes ago, we had a debate about whether or not when D'Angelo is busted, uh, you know, by the cops, when they're trying to figure out who was behind this William Gant murder, that which is uh, the, the witness that saw D'Angelo winds up being murdered uh, by the Barksdales because they're trying to tie up loose ends and also trying to send a message. As well, because mm-hmm. even though D'Angelo got off for the crime, they still murdered this witness anyway, just to let other people know, hey, if you if you tell on us, if you cooperate the, with the police, this could be you. It doesn't matter if we're com- if we're convicted of the crime or not. So, you know, they bring in D'Angelo and D'Angelo is just railroaded by them until Levy comes in and saves the day. And as they're leaving, he smacks him upside of the head and said, what is it with you people, right? He drops the you people reference. And I thought that was a little racist. You were like, nah, I think he meant you people as in you drug dealers. Right. Here is Michael Kostroff, who plays 
Maurice Levy in the book, All the Pieces Matter, because the you people line, as he explains in this, was pivotal for him because it helped him cement who and ultimately how he portrayed Maurice Levy. He says, when I saw the phrase you people in the first episode, that tells me a lot. As somebody who's grown up around black people, I know what that means. You people is a racist term. I made the decision that he was very happy to work for these guys, but really didn't have a high opinion of black folks. Levy is somebody who, despite the fact that he is around black people all the time, he is representing them. Um, He sees a window into their lives. You know, Stringer and Avon, they are not they may not have the degrees on the wall that Levy has, but they're not dumb people. Well, Stringer, I can't speak of him. But anyway, they're not, <laughs> they're not generally dumb people, but you know what I'm saying. They're running an organization, much like he is running an organization. But in his mind, he considers them all to be animals, which is why I told you that shit was racist. I was like, yo, man, that you people was real intentional because that you people and the smack of the head, yo, that dude's a racist. Let me tell you, okay, well, like, look, far be it for me to argue who is and who is not racist, but I'll tell you this. Um, (laughs) Let me be very careful with this. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So when we're saying racist, we're talking about Levy, who is the guys that he's dealing with, they aren't exactly Cornell West. Okay, they're not. We're not talking about you know. He's not. He doesn't represent the Obamas. The guys that he's dealing with, if he thinks that they're in a way uh, <laughs> thugs or criminals, it's because they are. But see, it's not that part uh, of it. Like it, it, it's it, not so he can it, be a thug it, or criminals. It, I think he generally thinks they're not smart. Like that is. I mean, the the, the criminality. I mean, he's a fucking criminal, right? Right. right. I think. The, the racist part is not him thinking what they actually are. It's not that. It's the fact that he considers them to be beneath him, and he's a fucking criminal. Do you think that he thinks that Avon Barksdale isn't smart? Yes. You think, well, okay, interesting. Like, look, the way I look at it is that Levy, they, they, it would be hard for a lawyer, any lawyer, by the way. By the way, shout out to all the lawyers I know, okay? Shout out to my brother, Jabril. Shout out to the whole Gmail thread. Graham, okay, Ijim, Lauren Bell. Wait, are you on a lawyer email thread? So my brother went to Stanford. I love that you're on a lawyer email thread. And so around 2007 or 2008, I was included in a fantastic email with some of the brightest black people I've ever met before in my life. It was all Ivy League. It was They had all gone to Stanford law together. So all of these people were from Harvard and Penn. And uh, okay, a friend of mine, the smartest guy I've ever known, has uh, a medical degree, I think, from Harvard, and then a law degree from Stanford. And he went to Iraq. And he's up there on the front lines in Northern California right now uh, doing COVID response. So God bless that brother. When In talking to these guys, shout out to the lawyers everywhere. They think they're smarter than everyone they it it is it is remarkable how much i learn about human nature and about the the sort of gladiator academies that these big time law schools are because like i came in and i would make like 
basic sp- points about sports or politics, and they would be like, oh, my God, Van, well, where, where did you come from? Where did this come from? I'm like, uh, yeah, I got a decent brain, too. Uh, you know what I mean? So I'm not saying anything to absolve Levy, and I'm not rejecting your hypothesis about whether or not Levy is a racist. It would be very easy to look at him and say that he's a racist based upon some of the things uh, that he said and that he did. I will say that I think personally he's probably more of an opportunist. These guys don't know a lot about the law. That's fair. Everything, everything that that deals with the law, they leave it up to Levy. So, with like Levy doesn't tell them how to like, you know, put the testers out and how to step on coke and, and heroin, even though he probably knows how to do it. Uh, he doesn't tell them about where to wholesale, where to retail, like I- any of that stuff like that. And they don't tell him about, you know, how to sit down in a proffer with the police. They leave that up to him. So he probably is. And in that situation with D'Angelo, that's probably annoying. It's probably annoying to tell somebody, don't talk to anyone until I get there. And then to have had a guy write a letter before you got there. So Levy, to a degree, is probably frustrated with having to say the whole the things over and over and over again. Um, does he have the highest opinion of black people? Probably not. I mean, it's like, you know what I mean? It's like, he's not repping Neil deGrasse Tyson. So, uh, but I don't know. I think that's, I think as far as characters that are, that are, that you could debate whether or not they're racist or not. I think he probably uh, is the one that makes for the best argument. Yeah. I mean, okay. Maybe he's not full on racist. So as in the sense of, I'm sure when he's with his, uh, when he's at these law functions and they're black lawyers, I don't, you know, I don't know that he would treat them the same way that he would treat D'Angelo uh, Barksdale. So I'm not really saying that. I mean, he's not racist. racist. He's race-ish, if that makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. um, a, a lot of it is because of who he deals with. That's not to absolve him. It's just what it is. But much like Bodie and, and Pooh, um, he seems to see that there's a big difference between him and Avon and him and Stringer and him and anybody he represents from the Barksdale organization. But there's really not. And yeah, that's the part about his character that's so fascinating is that, you know, it's like what D'Angelo said to Putin Bodie when he was trying to tell them that they can actually treat addicts like customers. Like it doesn't have to be them, you know, demeaning them, dehumanizing them, beating on them. Like they don't have to do that to make this shit work. And, you know, they were just like, but there's some fucking, you know, crackheads or dopeheads or whatever, as if that's what they kind of just deserve. And that's just how this works, even though they're able to have a living based off their addiction. So what does yeah. that make you? And so it's the same with Levy is for as much as he might want to, you know, call them stupid or look at them as beneath them. What does that make you that you constantly get them out of jail and get them, allow them to get away with shit uh, in a profession in which they murder people, victimize people, do all kinds of shit that doesn't make you any better than them. And the fact that he sees himself as being so much more superior to them is what makes his character um, both compelling and an asshole. Yep, sure. And, I got a question for you about Levy. Do you think that Levy, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but we're not going to reveal the scene. 
but just from knowing what you know. And any Wire fans that have watched the series all the way through a couple of times, by the way, we've been doing a fantastic job of controlling the spoilers. Well, so, we have. We were a little yeah, loose so, at the beginning, but we got better. We got a lot a little, better. A little loose. <laughs> we might as well, I might as well have put future scripts on my Twitter. We we were wilding, but we were. it's fine. Like everybody, a lot of people watching with for us with us watching with us for the first time. We appreciate you guys. But I'm gonna ask you a question. Do you think Levy has that same sort of condescending and intellectual superior opinion of somebody like Clay Davis? Ooh, now that is a good question because you're right. Um, there is there is some pretty interesting moments that happen later. And uh, we've already met Clay Davis at this point. Uh, He's a senator and uh, shrewd, very shrewd. Um, And you will see how shrewd uh, as you continue to watch this series. You know, I think, though, he doesn't look at Clay Davis. He wouldn't look at somebody like him as intellectually inferior. But he might not have a high opinion of them because he thinks that he's just a... Like Levy considered Levy knows he's an opportunist, but he feels it's a little more hidden that he's a little more subtle with it, even though sometimes it ain't that subtle. Clay is not subtle. Like Clay is like, yo, I'm about this bag and that's it. And Levy doesn't even Levy looks at him, I would guess, as inartful with how he does things. And they have a lot in common as well. I mean, which is, you know, the thing about Levy, while he knows that this is, you know, Avon and Stringer and and those types are a big part of like why he's been able to be successful. I think what he tries to get them involved in, as people will see later on the legitimate end, is where to me he showcases how little he actually thinks of them, you know. Because of because of that, because if he thought they were like legitimate, for real, you know, businessmen capable of surviving in his world, if he actually thought that, then some of the other things, the non-criminal things he tries to get them involved in wouldn't happen. So that's why I feel like he has at the end of the day, he has very little respect for them. I'll I'll compare Levy to one guy and then I'll and this has been a fantastic deep dive because I love this character. Uh, the the character is gonna be, we're gonna see Levy throughout the rest of the series, and and we're gonna learn a lot more about him. But um, there was a guy who passed away, uh, not too long ago, a while ago, some years ago, uh, and intellectually, I always since the moment that this guy burst onto the scene, I always would think in my brain about. Uh, his prowess, his excellence, what he meant to the community, who he was and what he did. And that gentleman's name was Johnny Cochran. Now, I I would not ever compare Johnny Cochran to a guy like Maurice Levy, ever, right? Johnny Cochran meant a hell of a lot to uh, the community here in Los Angeles. Uh, He spawned fantastic lawyers like Sean Hawley, uh, and just was a huge, huge pillar of the community here. And you knew that he had uh, a, a lot of, he was a great man, just put it that way. However, Johnny Cochran was a defense attorney. And in being a defense attorney, your job is to defend. And your job is to take someone that might have probably, most likely, 
almost certainly did something terrible and get them off of it by any means necessary. Yeah, like committing double murder. Right. Exactly. And we know at least one time Mm -hmm. that, (laughs) at least in my opinion, I, you know, he's, you you can say legally that OJ killed them, but you can't say legally that he murdered them. But if you're thinking about it, it's kind of something to where at a certain point with defense attorneys, their weapon is the law. And a lot of the morality that we see, it's going to go out of the window with a lot of these guys. Because they don't even want to know their job is to use the legal system in a way to get these guys off. And one thing we see more than anything, we see it in this episode where they get Savino in and it's the sham cocaine. And um, Mm -hmm. we just see that they thought they had Levy. But he knows the law so well, it's a weapon for him. And I can't get down on him for using his weapon for them brothers from the hood. Well, this is, you know, kind of what is, uh, this is the ethos of being a a lawyer, period, but particularly for a defense attorney, is even if you are not an angel by any stretch, even if you have done some things that are reprehensible, they still believe that you have a right to a competent defense. And um, while you know, I, most of us, when if we ever got into trouble, especially anything of the seriousness in which Levy uh, is representing these guys, as you said, we will want somebody like him on our side. And I, I and that's probably the most positive thing I could say about his his character is that even though he ain't shit, and even though he's a high minded racist racist prick, mm-hmm. he is a great attorney, and. Great There's attorney. no question he's a great attorney. And he, because of the way he does his job, he does clearly believe in the law. And he believes in that ethos of everybody Everybody deserves a defense. Even if me defending them and getting them out of something, sure, I might be letting a few cold-blooded murderers on the street and allowing the cycle of, of, of addiction and poverty to continue in certain Baltimore neighborhoods, but everybody deserves a credible defense. And I say that not sarcastically, but because I do think at the end of the day, despite all of his reprehensible actions, he's able to lean on that the most is his yeah. knowledge of the law and his belief in that system. You'd rather have them than not have them. You'd rather have them than not have them. And, <laughs> right. uh, so, yeah, I mean, but I, I, I do want to, in reading about how Kostroff, Michael Kostroff, approached this character, he he admitted that he wanted to lean into stereotypes, lean into not just stereotypes about um, how somebody in his position would look at a black clientele like this, but also stereotypes about um, about Jewish lawyers. And he relied on those, and he admits that that was, he thinks that's part of why his character, um, and it didn't necessarily resonate with people, but people saw it as kind of, I'm gonna say realistic, but they they looked at him like, oh, okay, I could I could understand and see this, you know, portrayal. And uh, I thought that was interesting that he uh, approached the character that way. And later, I have some really good trivia involving one Maurice Levy. And when we come back, more way down in the hole. I'm Alyssa Bresnak, and over the past year, I've spoken with founders and fans, investors and engineers, employees, celebrities. All to answer one question. What happened to HQ Trivia? The answer is a story about the absurdity of startup culture. 
and the ego of its founders. It's a story about virality and how companies navigate the attention economy. It's a story about hope and promise, betrayal and tragedy. And at the heart of all of it is an app that drew millions of live viewers and was supposed to be the future of TV until it wasn't. From the Ringer Podcast Network, this is Boom Bust, the rise and fall of HQ Trivia. Now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk about our favorite scenes of the episode. Yeah. I definitely think when uh, McNulty kind (laughs) of went off on uh, Levy, and by extension, Rhonda had to get it too. Um, I thought that was definitely one of the more powerful scenes. Is e- even though we know the end result of that was that McNulty didn't win. I'm usually I'm I usually hate his self righteousness, but I thought in in the when he dressed down Rhonda, y'all know this dude ain't shit, right? But the fact that you are actually in his office, afraid of him, she's practically like begging him to kind of do the right thing, help us out. And McNulty's like, fuck being nice. Like, you being nice to a dude that you know has stood in your way from actually trying to bring justice to people and you in there kissing his ass like everybody else. And then talking about, well, he's very respected. Like, very respected about what? So as much as McNulty's self-righteousness can annoy me, I thought in this case, him going scorched earth on both Levy and Rhonda, I thought that was like a beautiful thing to see. Fuck you. No, fuck you. If only half you motherfuckers in the state's attorney's office didn't want to be judges, didn't want to be partners in some downtown law firm, if half of you had the fucking balls to follow through, you know what would happen? Uh. A guy like that would be indicted, tried, and convicted. And the rest of them would back up enough so we could push a clean case or two through your courthouse. But no, everybody stays friends, everybody gets paid, and everybody's got a fucking future. That particular scene is once again just showing a reoccurring theme in the wire. Everyone is in jail. Everybody's in jail. The prisoners up in uh, Eager Street. Eager Street. City booking, motherfucker. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it, like, those guys are in jail. Guys are in state prison in jail. The guys uh, selling drugs on the corners in the pit, they're jailed to their system. The cops are jailed to their system. Everybody's got the bracelets on. Rhonda, uh, ASA, She's in jail. Does she want to affect great cases? Yeah. Can she afford to uh, cross a guy like Levy? No. So the reason why that scene is so good is because McNulty was Harriet Tubmaning her, dragging her to intellectual um, and almost spiritual freedom. Like, yo, a cop is down for one time Fuck the bracelets that we got on. Everybody get free so we can make this one right. And that just told me that it was very important to him. There's some other scenes that I love as well. Um, uh, Okay, so I have McNulty checking Levy. I'm going to run through a couple of these quick and then get to my best one. Uh, When the police commissioner assumes that the other detective is Lieutenant Daniels. Nothing moving except our units. Lieutenant, I know just how you feel. This is the toughest job a police commissioner has. I don't think I'll ever get used to it. Um, this is Lieutenant Daniels. Oh, right, right, of course. You know that's my wait a minute, that was racist moment. <laughs> That oh, that's such a great microaggression. That's so. That's great. such a that's such a great microaggression. Uh, this is actually Lieutenant Daniels, right? This is actually Lieutenant Daniels right here. 
he didn't like just his regular mind is like, oh, Lieutenant Daniels, ranking guy, must be white dude, even though it doesn't make sense because Burrell is his deputy. Right. But still, <laughs> like, but but still, I love that little moment. And Daniels, always the company man, handles it handles it fantastically. Uh, uh, the Carver with Kima's ex. Great scene. Carver has to go uh, to the home of Kima's ex and let her know that Kima's down. Of all the times in The Wire, this, this is the scene that's one of the most emotionally effective to me, and I, I, I'll tell you why. This is this woman's worst nightmare. Very rarely in the show, or in any show, uh, like that's like this, is a character directly confronted with their worst nightmare. The thing they wanted you to avoid before it, it happened. And when she walks out of there, she says, Kima's at work. She sees it on his face. This is the moment that she felt like was coming. This is why she was pulling Kima away. This is why she was saying she didn't want this. She wants a family. She wants a life. She wants all of these things. And she wants Kima there with her, present, alive, and breathing. And this job is an existential threat every single day to that life. Um, and so when she uh, when she sees Carver, he might as well be wearing, you know, the thing that the angel of death wears, the hood and this, this what do you call that thing? A the sink, sickle. sickle. The si sickle, yep. whatever that is. And, and just the look on her face, so well acted. Love that scene. I, uh, I work with Kima. Kima, she... Uh... Kim, Kim is at work. What, what, what are you... <sighs> but my favorite scene of the episode, besides the fact that this is actually the, this, the, the episode where we get the WeeBay meme when he's in the copy, copy oh, yeah, shop. Oh, yeah, you know, I, you know I got that filed away. <laughs> right. The fish tank scene. That's classic. That's classic, classic, classic. I always go... I, I don't know why the lighthearted stuff always gets me. Of course, I'm talking about the scene where uh, Stringer Bell tells D'Angelo he's gonna go with Weebay. All he had to do was like say Weebay about to teach you how to how to how to feed his fish while he goes and lambs up. But of course, they don't want to do that. They want to give his brother what we're all having: panic attacks. And so D'Angelo has to go with Weebay the entire time. He's thinking he's about to get off for some reason. Bodie tells him, "Yo, they they cleaning people up." Um, don't get taken out with the trash. They go, and when they go, what they're actually doing is D'Angelo, Weebay is showing D'Angelo how to clean his fish tanks, and it also shows you a little bit more about Weebay. There's a human side to all of that carnage. The dude loves fish. He's got names for them, so those are some of my favorite scenes, but my favorite scene in this one is, of course, D'Angelo sitting there thinking he's about to get it, but what he really got was some fish food. But that just kind of alluded to what I said earlier about it's just funny how this how Kima being shot has such differing consequences or just different reactions in both camps, the cops and the Barksdale organization, because suddenly they have to everybody considers their life to be on the line. It didn't bring them together. It tore everybody apart. And, yeah. um, you know, D'Angelo thinking that he was about to <laughs> that he was about to get off. Um, and then to find out that it's about the fish was just like, wait, what? And not just 
the thing that made that so such a great scene um, was the build up, the tension. Like you felt it because I remember watching that the first time. I was like, "Oh shit, they about to kill D'Angelo. I actually yeah. believed it because I was I'm thinking, just- like, no, nah, because if when you know when you're thinking about the liabilities of everybody, like he's been the biggest one. You could technically blame him for creating all this shit. So right. why wouldn't at some point, especially when Stringer has pointed out at this, like at this time, a few times, like, you know, all this shit started when your when your cousin got in that shit. Right. Or your nephew yeah. got in all that shit. Like he's right. pointed this out. So you're like, well, damn, that would be the easiest weak link would probably be him. And you not only find that Weebay is, you know, that he's into fish, a, a, probably the most human trait of him that they have shown uh, of him this far. But he's a fish enthusiast. Like, yeah. it ain't just one or two fish. This motherfucker got a whole gang of tanks. It's like, wow, he actually prefers fish to people, which makes so much sense for a cold-blooded serial killer. Um, yeah. You know. A guy who maintains control in his world. He got a whole fish tank basement. <laughs> and, you know, he make a lot of money. He got to put it somewhere. He got a little hobby, man. These guys need to escape. He escapes with some fish swimming yeah. around. Of all the hobbies, think about it. Of all the hobbies, if I just said van... If Weebay has a hobby, what do you think his hobby is? Fish never comes to mind. Never. It would never come to mind. He so much strikes me as like raising, he, he, uh, even though, you know, I, well, I guess I'll slightly give something away here, but uh, I won't say who. He's, he's more of a raising, raising pigeons guy than somebody mm, else in this show. Like, I see, I can see him raising pigeons. And file I can that away for later. I, file, I was like, I, you can file that one away for later for sure. I was like, I can see him raising pigeons. I can see him like raising pit bulls. Like, that's him. I could definitely right. see that. He mm-hmm. seems like that yep. fish, a little too gentle for we- Weebay. Um, yeah, some other scenes that um, and moments that I thought were were you know really good. Uh, it one of the strongest was definitely Rawls's pep talk to McNulty in the hospital. Um, I thought that was a great moment because uh, his speech to him when he's like, "Believe it or not, everything isn't about you," and the motherfucker saying this, he hates your guts. So, you know, if it was up to you, I'd be the son of a bitch saying so. He's like, dude, I can't stand you. I hate every breath that you breathe. And even I know this shit wasn't your fault. I was like, whoa, right. shit. Rawls with mm-hmm. some Rawls dropping some bars right there. Um, and another moment in his office is when uh, McNulty says to Daniel, how much of this case would you give up to get her back? All of it. But it doesn't work that way. You can't give it back. This is, you know, one of the the stronger emphasis in this episode is that we see McNulty grappling with this idea that all this shit that he wanted to do, all this, you know, grandstanding he's done, ultimately the shit wasn't even worth it because right. it wound up getting somebody uh, shot and fighting for their lives. Um, and, uh, uh, of course, when uh, he confronts, and you know, he as I mentioned, he went scorched earth on Levy, scorched, uh, scorched earth on Rhonda, went scorched earth on on his big joker of the whole show, the judge, Judge Phelan. Uh, yeah. yeah, when he confronts him at at the social event he's at, and now Phelan's on the ticket, he's like, looks like his, his job is secure. And so naturally, when Minolti is asking for, you know, more favors, more time, so they can still continue to process this case, now, all of a sudden, Phelan is like, hold on now. I don't know. If, I can't be Big Joker right now. And McNulty tells him. So who's my daddy now? Yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. reiterating something that he said to him um, earlier uh, when McNulty was able to get whatever he wanted out of this judge. Now, all of a sudden, that well is running a little bit dry because the judge 
has things that are at stake for him. Um, so, you know, then, you know, you already knew that I was going to jump all over. You knew I was going to jump all over Stringer Bell in this episode, right? I know. This you knew, is what you you knew this was coming. You knew that you have an agenda. The, I, look, I have a. You I don't consider an it an agenda when it's truth. When it's truth. Mm -hmm. Your master yeah. strategist, and this is as obvious of fuckboyness as ever, right? Obvious. And once again, much like my sort of disdain for Levy, though I have a, I can't say I have a little more respect for him because he's just not shit. But again, the thing that just constantly pisses me off about Stringer Bell is he believes he's smarter than everybody in the room. And this basic fucker, okay, a lot of this that happened that went bad, yeah, you could blame it on D'Angelo, but in this particular case, Kima being shot is all on his whole ass. That's what it's all on him. Okay. Why? This is why. Because as Avon had to point out to him when he jumped in his shit in Orlando's at the bar, Stringer was the one who told Weebay and Savino it's okay to take the cash once they fucking killed him. And Avon asked the most obvious fucking question. They around Orlando every damn day. They have him on a tight ass leash, be it in terms of what they show him with that is working, the inner workings of the organization and also money. They want to give him just enough money to survive on to feel a little good, but not too much. To, so he thinks he's bigger than them or thinks he can challenge them. They got him in a particular spot for a reason, which is why Avon has been able or up until that point was able to punk him whenever necessary. Like, dude, we just using your name and that's it. Don't get shit twisted around here. So. Stringer Bell, it never occurs to him. Isn't it a little weird that Orlando just got 30 grand? Isn't it a little odd that he would have that kind of yo, money? Isn't it a yo, little strange? I, Mr. Yo, I, Mr. I think shit through. Mr. I got, you know, <laughs> I, I think 25 steps down the road. You didn't think it was fucking obvious that Orlando, I don't know, after getting out of jail and suddenly comes up with 30 grand, that might not be a little bit suspicious? Listen, there's not much I can say about that mistake. You, but I will say this, though. That's indefensible. What I and 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 the look in Avon's eyes, he's like, "Yo, how the fuck is Orlando gonna front this type of cash? What it look like? Make it make sense, y'all. Make it make sense. This is my only thing that I have to ask about that. In that particular situation, is the dispute between Avon and Stringer about the money itself because they were already planning to kill Orlando, right? So they were gonna walk up to the car and light the car up anyway um is it is it the fact that they went after the money because now they had the money and they had to get rid of the money if they were going to kill orlando anyway uh did what did they do something wrong in going for the money is the money why kima got shot too because they wanted to go and grab the money i guess that was all my question about that you're admonishing him about taking the bread is it just the fact that they took the bread and now they had the cops money or is it the fact that the bread made them do something differently in the hit on orlando that they wouldn't have done otherwise like would they have just shot in the front seat and if they didn't have to run over to the car and get the money would they maybe have left kima alive or does everybody in that car die well, I think that that was also the 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 other thing too is that you know another thing Avon said in that is um, what was it he said uh, you see a bitch in the car change it up 
fucking cop, man. A cop? How stupid is this motherfucker? If you see a bitch in the car, change it up. I, I hope he put this in some kind of binder or, you know, how when you go and you start a new job, they give you like an employee manual. I wonder, does Avon mm-hmm. have one of those? Because I swear to God, he has a rule for every fucking situation. Every, every situation. situation. If you see a bitch in the car, change, change it, it up. up. Okay. I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> like, okay, there's a woman in here. But I think that's that was what Avon's... Avon had a, a lot of frustrations, understandable ones with Stringer in this moment. One, he okayed them to do the shit and didn't run it past him at all. He didn't even know that this was a part of the plan. They knew the part of the plan was to get rid of Orlando because he was a loose end, time for him to go, couldn't trust him, all that shit. The other part of it is that they did not, the money made them react emotionally as opposed to thinking shit through. Because it's possible that if not for the money or if not for the situation that they could have just dealt with Orlando and let her walk and come back later. Now she still could ID them and still could do a bunch of other stuff. Cause she, at the end of the day, she was a police officer, but they don't get the same intensity and heat. Like all the stash houses don't get raided unless Kima's killed or Kima's shot rather. Like none of that, none of that happens. And, um, you know, it just kicked off a chain of events that had that kind of broke and and sprint and splintered their organization. That's why, again, Stringer, he his his other frustration. He like, dude, think about this. They were making what a, a million dollars a day, some crazy shit like that, right? We, he jeopardized that shit for thirty fucking thousand dollars, thirty yeah. grand. Like well, really, payday, <laughs> but it was a it was a payday for WeeBay and Little Man. You know, go get that get that payday and whatever. So he I can know, feed his I fish. Know, I fucked up. I know. So he could get more fish food. <laughs> um, but wait, real quick though, it it, it mm-hmm. made me as I was sitting there watching this, I thought of the perfect perfect comparison for Stringer and who he is. A sports comparison. Tell me how you you feel about this one. Stringer is Chip Kelly. Stringer is Chip Kelly. Oh, interesting. He is Chip Kelly. So Chip Kelly, as we know, great college coach. Uh, he set a, a ton of records, had a lot of success at Oregon. But when he came to the NFL, shit was real different. I find that Stringer, when there are certain situations that he's really good at, you know, the the way that they kind of close ranks, shut things down, they're like, all right, we off these pages now, we're doing this, we're doing He could strategize on that level. On a, on a basic, we're operating in Baltimore, this is our operation on that level. Every fucking time he tries to bring his off- his offense to a professional level, he gets exposed. Every time. Mm. Every time he gets exposed. It's like, no, dog. You know, I know you like all these light, 150-pound offensive linemen, but in the NFL, that shit don't work. Okay? Mm. You, you, you can't run at this speed for four fucking quarters in the NFL. It doesn't work. Right? Right. And he's trying mm. to bring the same offense to every situation, and the shit doesn't work. He has a limited system. He has a you know what I, I I agree because in future episodes of The Wire, Stringer to me is going to be unquestionably right about the way he wants to do things. But even in those same times where he's right, he's going to be trying to do other things where he's completely out of his league. That's that that one. Even though I even though I love Stringer, love the character. Uh, I got to accept the Chip Kelly situation because that's what I will say about Chip Kelly. When Chip Kelly was at Oregon, the only way to beat him was to fake an injury. 
That's the only thing you could do to slow them down. They had all them weird cars with Donald Duck on them and all that stuff like that. It was amazing to watch. So it's not like he doesn't have skill. It's just that he's more suited to the college game. Well, I get and then not only that, he he can't he hadn't found out a he hadn't figured out a way to adjust his offense. You know, the best coaches, that's what made Bill Belichick does make Bill Belichick so great is that he doesn't he leans on a system but he also, for every opponent that he has, he's going to take away the best thing that you do and force you to beat him without having that best thing at your disposal. So his even at his, at your disposal. So even though his game plan is um, evolving, he does still stick to a system. Stringer doesn't have an evolution. He doesn't have an evolving game plan. He only knows one way, and when that way doesn't work, then he's kind of like, oh shit, I fucked up. Like again, it's obvious for as much as stringer studies people like he's he's really good at picking up on on certain weaknesses and saying like yeah that dude gotta go like blah 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 like he picked up he was saying all the things or has up until this point all the things about d'angelo that stringer thought he i mean he turned out to be right about a lot of shit about d'angelo it was shit that avon didn't want to face but stringer was like yo i see this dude okay Trust me, for him being that observant to miss a very, you know, obvious detail that, you know, fucking uh, Isley brother, head ass looking Orlando just came up with 30 grand after getting out of jail. It's like, dude, that's so fucking obvious. Okay, so obvious. So it's just it was such an obvious detail for him to miss. And that's why Avon was like, yo, I mean, of the two, they're both considered themselves to be disciplined and they are. But there, there, there have been moments or are moments throughout this series where, where Avon's, Avon may, Stringer may have like bigger, grander plans that ultimately you can see how they could work. But Avon um, is somebody who understands situational, he understands like situations more than anything. Yeah. You know, his situational game planning is excellent. Stringer, not so much. Mm. I, I, listen, in, in this particular case, I, I I I give it to you. Even when I think about you know, uh, what you're saying about D'Angelo, he probably knew that about D'Angelo because he's a good recruiter, which is something you have to do in the college game. <laughs> you have to be able to evaluate players when they're when they're still young and coming up, and they're not quite pros yet. Uh, but no, I get it. I think it's a I think it's a great comparison. Just to be real with you, I mean, you shit on Chip Kelly. Uh, that man no didn't do anything Chip to Kelly. you. I like Chip, Chip Kelly. Kelly. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. You know what? Chip Kelly about to have UCLA humming. But he probably <laughs> would. It makes sense. <laughs> it makes you just look for college. It works for the pros. Right. Eh, not so much. Uh, I got you. Okay, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, um, there were uh, numerous filed away for later moments. What were some of yours? Uh, Carver at the command at the crime scene. Um, definitely filed this away for later at the crime scene. When uh, Lester comes around and Lester says, Let's get to work. Fuck you. Fuck me? We got a wire up. So? So we got a wire up on some motherfucker that just shot a cop. If somebody talks and someone gets on the wrong phone and says the wrong fucking thing about what happened here tonight, where the fuck do you want to be? Try to roof? Yeah, you and me. Send a text to McCullough Street phone. Anybody get in contact with Kima's people? I'll do that first, meet you at the church. Carver at the command, him actually being someone and in that situation can delegate to people is a father's away for later 
That's a good one. That's a really good one. I do. I have uh, um, involving uh, Hurricane and Carver in particular is when they took a little something for themselves. That's what I was talking yeah, about. Yeah, that's a good one. It's a, it, it's a good one for a lot of reasons. And when when we when we get further down the line, that one pays off bigger than I thought. Bigger mm. than I thought. So that was a big one for me. Um, and also, uh, Wallace being homesick. Yeah. Yeah, Wallace being homesick, which you could tell by his braids, too, that he was... <laughs> yeah. Was, I guess there was no one in the country that knew how to do cornrows. And he, of course, it asked, um, you know, Poot to send him some bus fare to get back to Baltimore. So uh, that's a pretty big one. Uh, McNulty not realizing that Bubbles is trying to stay clean, giving him cash, putting him back in the projects, back in the environment that he was trying to leave alone. That's a big one uh, as well. So it's um, those are probably the ones I noted the most. So a couple of observations about some of the scenes you just mentioned. Of course, we're also following right now the subplot of Wallace, who had been, they had stashed Wallace away in the safety of another county with his grandmother. And Wallace is getting homesick. This is going to be the episode where Wallace decides to come back to Baltimore. Huge point. When they were talking about the fact that Orlando got whacked, Bodie didn't even know who Orlando was. And like, and like, it, it was like, he ran a club for my uncle. That little line right there, the fact that Bodie didn't know Orlando and Orlando had came down there once. Uh, Bodie didn't know who he was. It tells you the size of the Barksdale organization and the compartmentalization of the Barksdale organization. These guys both work for Avon but they're on the other side of things. It tells you about the lines that Orlando crossed. Bodie didn't know who Orlando was. Well, and it also like- tells you, frankly, the you know, discipline is a big part of this, why this organization functions the way that it does and functions for the most part successfully is because most people in the organization only know what they need to know. What they need to know. And so every time I see this, oh, oh, he didn't even he didn't even know Orlando. He hadn't even heard of Orlando. In order to know Orlando, you'd have to probably go by the club, which Bodie, I guess, can't being that he's only 16, but I don't know how much of the rules they'd enforce there. Uh, but yeah, so I just, I just, I just, I, I, I thought that that was interesting. It just kind of gives you the scope of how complex the cops had to do to penetrate multiple points because they had, they, they had surveillance at Orlando's. They had surveillance, uh, which by the way, the surveillance there is getting a little bit more um, intense with Chardine. They got they had surveillance at Orlando's. They had surveillance in the pit, surveillance at the towers. It was a big operation that Simon and Burns were able to kind of condense down to these episodes. It's a huge operation. I do want to ask you one thing about the Hurricane Carver scene. Would you consider Hurricane Carver to be on the take? Ooh, okay. So technically, I mean, Let's be real. What they're doing is illegal. So we do know that. However, you can't say they're on the take because to me, if you're on the take, you're actually being paid off by, say, drug dealers or paid to look away from crimes. They are fully about busting ass and fully about putting bracelets on as many people as possible. But should they happen to stumble upon loads of cash, then they're not even trying to take all of it. They're just like, just a little pinch, just a little something. Right. So I wouldn't consider them to be dirty cops in that regard. This is the reason why I'm not a good person. It doesn't change my opinion of them one 
bit. Now, if we're talking about some training day shit where you're about to go into one of your, your contacts' house, kill him, take all his money out of the wall, that's one thing. But I'm a human person. And if we go into a, a raid and it's $3 million in there and it turns out that it's like actually 29, 2.9 million blank, 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 blank down to whatever, I, I, I have a problem looking at you file. All the law enforcement officers out there that are listening to this podcast, if you're honest, I'm glad. But as long as you're not compromising yourself, and doing other things, planting money on people, turn, turning a blind eye to crime, and doing stuff like that. I look at that as kind of like a tip. That's like a little tip. It's kind of how uh, Hurt looked at it, right? A little gratuity. So I just wanted to get your opinion on no, that. No, it, it, I think that's a salient point. But here's another thing I also wonder, and, it's, and uh, this is the question I have for you. Do you think that was at all um, kind of a... That was at all supposed to give us a glimpse to how Daniels might have been. Yeah, I think so. I think that uh, just depending on what was going on in the Eastern when he was doing what he was doing, we don't know the nature of the investigations. But what we might know is maybe there were four or five guys who were doing that and Daniels was one of them, right? Um, And when the FBI, because, you know, there's talk on the wire about something, and however it got back to Burrell, uh, it did. And I think Daniel saw the complications that comes from running your police department like that, and he wanted to clean it up. But it probably would be more on the line, lines of something like that, uh, in my opinion, than it would be on there's some Avon or Stringer back in the day that had Daniels doing what they wanted him to do because of money. Yeah, I, I don't think I can ever see him in a situation where he was actively working for you know, um, a, a drug dealer or somebody committing a crime. But I could definitely see a situation, especially if it's just you and your partner in the room. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure this happens a lot. Like, I, I am. Mm-hmm. I am sure that this does happen a lot. And the way they look at it, that that's just hazard pay, you know? Yeah. Um, and I have far more problems with Herc and, and Carver and their uh, acts, their long list of of acts of police brutality than I do yeah. with them taking a couple, um, you know, a yes. few thousand here and there. Beating, beating up children. Yes. Yes. Beating up children way worse than taking away, you know, drug money, essentially. Right. So to me, there's only one right answer for this next one, man. Mm-hmm. What age the best? Ooh, I have this. I actually have a abstract what age the best. I have anxiety. This was the most stressful episode for me. Like it was every scene was consequential. Like I'm watching it. Um, if you guys have been following me on Twitter, you've seen the anxiety has been kicking my ass. Uh, so it was a tough watch <laughs> to get through the episode. Everything was so ratcheted up that I was like the anxiety of the episode. And, you know, me watching it from the standpoint that I'm watching it now is kind of like, the toughest thing, but I have a feeling you have something a little bit more specific. I would say the best answer for this episode, I mean, there's a, there's some little things. It's got to be Weebae's reaction to finding out that he, little man of Savino, shooting a, that they shot a cop because it gave social media one of the most used gifts of mm. all time. Weebae yeah. <laughs> looking like, oh, 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 
Oh, she was yeah, a that's cop. The obvious one. That clearly, that might be the the thing that aged the best in this entire series. It's we may eventually turning into a social media meme. I mean, yeah, in terms of actually like what age the best from that to that, there's no doubt about it. I can't believe I whipped on that. But I will say, but I, I did mention it earlier, I just want to say that. But I will say this. I love that scene. Cause Weebe is rattled for the first time and the only time you ever see him rattled. No, nah, Shorty wasn't no, she looked like one of Orlando hosts. Right. Like I, bro, if she was a cop, Weebe, we know. Bay, where are the guns? Uh, definitely, because we we still see that all the time. So that definitely uh, is a part of the cultural lexicon, even to this day. So, do you did you have any others that uh, you felt like aged the best? I had one that aged the worst, and it, it's, and it hurts, and it hurts. What aged the worst? That fly ass baby blue Sean John shirt that that stringer yeah. had on. Mm. Let me tell you something, man. Shout out to Puff and the whole crew over at, at, at Sean John. I had them all. I had every color. I had the baby blue. I had the red. I had the blue. I had the orange. I had them all. And they were so fly. All you needed was those a crease in your jeans and you was popping. When I first saw that joint, I was like, oh, you know what I'm saying? Because us brothers, the baby blue dripping on the skin is crazy. And I, I always and I look at it now, and I would not be called dead in a million years. What, what happened to your your Sean John baby blue and other color t shirts collection? So they became gym clothes uh, back in the early 2000s, not the the early 2010s. They became gym clothes and bust this. They became so crazy off to wear that you couldn't even hoop in them. Like it, it Damn, was like that's it was, bad. It, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, like it it became such a deal. And by the way, Sean John was cracking, and they still do really well making men's suits and stuff like that. Sean John's still a viable brand, um, but it became a thing to where if you showed up to the gym and you had a Sean John cut off joint on and you was hooping, the dudes would look at you like you just got out. Like, you know what I mean? It would be like, yo, man, did you just... Because, you know, sometimes dudes come there and they still got their stuff in the plastic black bags right. from coming from the Twin Towers. They want to get some cardio in. <laughs> like, like, bro, like, I don't know if you know what happened when you were gone, but like, we don't even hoop in that anymore. So, yeah, but then after that, I kind of just threw them away. Speaking of brands uh, in this episode that aged the worst, the fact that Savino got caught with an orange slice. Like, is orange slice, is slice still around? I don't yeah. think, is it? No, I, I think it was Little Man with the slice, by the way. Oh, Little Man, was, not Savino. Right. Yeah. You're yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, slices, I don't think it made it. Did Slice make it? I, I ain't seen an orange slice. Sli- I haven't I seen a slice an anything in, right. in forever. So that brand didn't hold up much. <laughs> well, Sean John held up. It just it just evolved. It just evolved. Sean John is now for uh the 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 more upscale it always kind of was but them shirts didn't really kind of keep rocking like that all right so i have a um a unintentionally or intentionally depends on how you look at it homophobic moment that happens in this episode okay. so um as you mentioned ah, it, i know what you're you know say. what i'm gonna say right so yeah. when uh uh Burrell, when carver is asking Burrell and daniels like who's gonna talk to cheryl kima's partner and Burrell is so 
clueless because Carver refers to Cheryl as Kima's girl. Burrell, clueless, thinks that's his daughter, thinks that's uh, her daughter. Like, oh, she's got a daughter? I didn't know. And they both looking at him like, come on, dude, you can't be this stupid, right? You know what we're saying. And, you know, Daniels kind of provides some cover by calling Cheryl uh, Kima's roommate, which should have been another indicator to Burrell, like, hey, this is her partner. Um, Mm -hmm. But when, as soon as he says roommate, like, Burrell seems very annoyed that he has to console only a roommate, right? He's like, what? A roommate? He's just like, Mm -hmm. I guess. And he's just like so bothered by the fact that he even has to acknowledge the pain and humanity of this woman and the fact that he was so, I don't know if it was old school or out of touch, well, whatever. You, well, he, he tries to get the police commissioner to do it. Yeah, he tries, but then he's like, oh, I guess and I got to do I, it. I, like I, like I it's it beneath myself. him. Yeah, like it's right. beneath him. It's like, eh, right. it's a little homophobic. Because mm-hmm. even I don't know if he meant, I don't know if he meant it that way. I think that he was saying he tried to get the police commissioner to do it and it was a tough job. He knew someone had to do it. So I guess he just, I, I think maybe he just meant, yo, I'll go do it myself then. Well, and then it's one of those things, too, that The Wire's so good at is that they that right there, that scene of just having to tell a loved one that something has happened to somebody that they love, they care about. And that scene right there kind of brought to light just some of the uh, even though Kimba's tough, she's, um, you know, a committed cop, uh, somebody that everybody respects because of this part of her life, you know, being a black woman who's a lesbian on the force it comes with some some intricacies that other people don't have to deal with you know right. obviously if that had been Kima's husband there'd have been no rush to right. that you know they would have they probably would have had to hold people back from going over there to talk to him to explain things but it's the it's the awkwardness of Daniel's feeling like he can't explain who she is or like being feeling awkward about telling a Burrell that no that's Kima's partner it's that part of it um, and I think it's even some awkwardness for for Carver having to tell her um, when he told her at um, at their place earlier. So it just it was just one of those moments that even though it was a fleeting small one, it was like a really big one in the statement that it kind of uh, it was trying to make. And, and the wire is just so good at nailing scenes like that. Well, absolutely. And then uh, just the the amount of moving parts that are happening there. Everyone's concerned. People have to be notified. Um, the the updates that we get on Kima's condition throughout this, it's weighing heavy on everyone. And you really, really, more than almost any one specific singular uh, occurrence that happens in The Wire, um, you get to see how this affected everyone. Bubbles. Bubbles takes an ass whipping because of this. You know, Bubbles tries to page Kima. Um, the activity on our pager is is being monitored very closely. Uh, so they you know bring Bubbles in. He gets beat up. And now this ep- this when I said every scene in this in this in this show was this particular episode was consequential, I meant that because Bubbles had been doing good, and what takes him back down the road of addiction again? Pain and despair, which is what takes so many people down the road of addiction: pain and despair. So, uh, yeah, like it, it, it's just one another one of those scenes to where you see people um, in situations that they didn't think that they would be in and that they didn't want to have to be in because of something gone wrong. And I'm glad you brought that up because it was clear that Bubbles, he had kind of, I mean, he had, he did something that is, uh, is dangerous for an addict to do. He kind of, even though he was making the steps and doing what he needed to do, 
he reached out to Kima because he was kind of putting his sobriety or the fate of his sobriety in her hands, you know? Right. And that was, that's, you know, that's why it was a very um, precarious, I mean, that that was kind of a theme in this episode. Like you mentioned the fact that, you know, you had when that, that tense scene of D'Angelo thinking he was going to get killed. Um, you have Bubbles, like as he's paging chemo, I mean, we all feel that anxiety of like, damn, if Bubbles, one, how's he going to react when he finds out what happened to her? And two, because he's trying to stay straight and she had promised to help him in this next step in his sobriety, it was just like, wow, that's not going to be there. So what's going to happen? Uh, what's going to happen to him? So it was just a lot of, you know, really, you know, tense field moments and even hearing about Kimia's condition repeatedly and that it doesn't seem like she's getting any better. And so when you're watching this for the first time, you just like, man, shit just done went to hell real quickly. I mean, yeah. not that it was ever, you know, in a great place necessarily, but it really uh, took a detour south. Um, I do have a we love this show but moment. So, I mean, again, we we are taken in this episode through the many stages of McNulty. Uh, he is at peak I don't give a fuckness. So peak, in fact, that he just whips out a pint of Jameson in front of Daniels. It's like, fucking, I'm gonna just get drunk right in front of my boss. Is that like, is that like realistic? Like, <laughs> are we doing that? Like, <laughs> don't know. It seems kind of. It seems kind of extreme. I was like, mm. well, you know, I, I I will say that there's a lot of drinking that goes on on the police force, and with the uh, with kind of. I don't think so. I I wouldn't classify that as a we love this show, but just because they all know, you know, they've walked in on Jimmy before when Jimmy was and in, in the emotional state that everybody was, that didn't jump out at me as something that seemed inconceivable. Well, I'll put it this way. Like, you're right. We They had what the two older guys that were in the force that were getting, you know, drunk all the time, drunk all the time. But the difference is like, I think we have seen not just with this show and not that the wire has to be like other shows or anything. Like having it on your breath and smelling like it is a very cop-like thing that's played up in movies and TV and that kind of thing. Like, oh, but I don't know if I've seen somebody just getting fucked up right in front of their boss in the office. I was like, oh, oh, right. okay, McNulty, we we have taken this to a new level here. I see. Right. He just got a pipe, and he's like, all right, whatever. And what Rawls gets on him, worth the case. Right. Worth like worth the case. That's a great scene as well. It is. Um. Got a little trivia for you. Um, Let's do it. So Levy is not the only Jewish character in this series. Do you know who the other Jewish character in this series is? Ooh. Mm. Um, this one is hard to get because I, honestly, if I, if I hadn't if I hadn't read it, uh, in all the pieces matter, I would have been like, oh, oh, okay. I would have never had any idea. Okay, how many guesses do I get? Um, I'll give you I'll give you two. Is it Jay Landsman? Nope. That's a good, um, that's not a bad guess. Not a bad guess, but no. Right. Uh so okay. Another Jewish character. Is he in this is it is it the person in this season? Yes, and in this episode. Ooh. In this season and in this episode. Uh who could it be? I don't know. All right. The other Jewish character in The Wire is Deidre Lovejoy, who plays Ronnie. Oh. See? You didn't know, right? I did not know that. Yes. Uh, and last bit of trivia. It's a little unfortunate. So uh, the man who plays Commissioner Frazier, the one who mistakenly 
thought Norris uh, was was uh, Kima's lieutenant and said it was Daniels, played by a guy. That's the only appearance of Commissioner Frazier uh, in The Wire. Because, uh, um, well, I, won't, I mean, you'll see what happens eventually with him. But this is the only time that he appears in the physical is in this particular episode played by an actor named Dick Steelwell, who unfortunately died in a car accident. Wow. That's the trivia. I mean, it's, it's one of those news. You can use news. You can okay. use. Right. Not to be yeah. morbid, um, but news, that's news you could use is that the only appearance by commissioner Frazier is in this episode. And mm. that's that. All right. Uh, and finally, the moment everybody has been waiting for a van who won the episode. Also, I have I have interesting trivia about about the character of Norris, Detective Norris. He was the police commissioner of the Department of Baltimore. Oh, he was the real dude in real life. He what? was like like in 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 real life. Edward T. Norris. He's a he's a co-host of a talk show now. He was he was he served as the police commissioner for Baltimore from two thousand to late 2002 and the superintendent of the Maryland State Police uh, in 2003. He was later, I learned this a couple of weeks ago, he was later convicted of a felony and spent six months in federal prison. My question is... What? Was he the... like? He's he's widely known uh, for his role as Detective Edward Norris on HBO's hit series, The Wire. My question is, I guess he was the police commissioner. Was he the police commissioner while he was filming The Wire? Oh, that couldn't have gone over well. (laughs) That would have been wild. Um, But he resigned as a Maryland State Police Superintendent after he was indicted on criminal charges. Do you know what those charges are? Or do we have to do some deep deep digging into it? I'm looking at it right now. Uh, he had made illegal personal expenditures of over twenty thousand um, dollars. Ooh, I like this guy. Twenty thousand dollars from the Baltimore Police Department supplemental account in order to pay for expensive gifts, personal expenses, and extramarital affairs with at least six women. What? Uh, yes. Oh my <laughs> goodness! He, he played it out. Um and was and was sent and uh, he pleaded guilty to federal corruption and tax charges six months in federal prison in Yahoo City Mississippi, uh and Atlanta Georgia three years of supervised probation. Now he uh, apparently is the co-host of the Big Bad Morning Show in Baltimore. So wow, so he did one month for every mistress. I guess so. One month not for every bad. mistress. Not, That's not bad. But see, you know what would have been so much easier. He should have just been taking a little off the top on the on the raids. Should have pulled a Hurricane Carver. Should have pulled a Hurricane Carver. That's what we've learned mm-hmm. from this. Wow. Talk about uh, art imitating life. <laughs> art imitating life, yeah. Jeez, that's a good one, man. That is a really, really good one. Um, yeah. All right, well, uh, yeah, let's get back to it then. As I said, who uh, I'll ask you again, who won this episode? Rawls. So I think Rawls won the episode. Yeah, Rawls won this episode for a couple of reasons. Number one, he has a a, a couple of really powerful scenes. There's a scene early on where Landsman is trying to work uh homicide and Landsman are trying to work the, um, the, the crime scene and Rawls asked him what's he need. And he said space because everybody there was trying to help. 
So you know, my dad would always say, overhelping is there's no help at all. And Rawls stops everybody in their tracks. Nobody move. I said nobody fucking move. If you have not been assigned a specific task by a homicide detective, you need to step away from this crime scene. Is there anybody doesn't understand a direct order? Then remove your useless interfering asses from the area. Now! It's a rare moment of actual leadership that we see from, um, from Bill Rawls until he shows the one defining moment in his entire uh, wire arc. Uh, the only really selfless um, thing that Rawls ever did was the talk that he gave to McNulty. Uh, I, I mean, he hates McNulty, but it's clear that he put the functionality of the job and at that point, the detective um, uh, and McNulty's mental state even over his own personal animus for him. And that says a lot uh, because these guys are going to be adversaries for some time to come. That says a lot that he was able to do that, that somewhere deep inside there, um, you know, Rawls is a police like everybody else. And he says he's very good shit with bad. She took two for the company. He took a burden off of his shoulders. And I think a lot of times in situations when we have people in both work relationships and personal relationships, um, people show you their worth when they're willing to kind of step in uh, and, and take the burden off your shoulders for something like that for a little while. So I, I thought like those two scenes were very, very powerful um, and they really stuck out with me. And that's why I gave it to Ross. Yeah, he, he definitely was uh, uh, the MVP of this episode because these are all things that I don't think anybody up until this point would have thought he was capable of, particularly with McNulty. I mean, I could right. see the leadership part of it, that emerging, but the way that him and McNulty hated each other for, he had a huge opportunity to really, you know, punch McNulty in the stomach and he didn't do that and, and showed him a level of compassion and understanding that frankly, I think would probably has a big, you know, plays a big role in McNulty kind of getting out of this mode of feeling sorry for himself uh, right. because it came from a, a very unexpected source. Not to mention, he is the most company of companies as man, but he tells the DEA to fuck off when they come and try and ask them about where's the money. Another great scene. Yeah, which is fuck another your, great scene. Uh, and another, fuck your money. Another yeah. show of terrific leadership by Rawls by... Uh, protecting his people and saying like nobody gives a fuck about your money right now now who I have within the episode I actually kind of have a tie interesting Savino and Levy Savino Savino because okay Savino I mean he he engineered this like this is engineered as like he was him is him and little man they the culprits in this it's like so Savino everybody knows what he did in terms of Kima being shot right for this dude to get three years just for selling fake narcotics, yo, though that's a win. Like that's that's such a win. I can't even. He he ought to be whistling during that time. Three years. That's like yeah. that's nothing. And for Levy, as horrible as he is, with the way that McNulty was tearing into his ass, you thought for sure that all right. They finally got him. This like Levy can't, you know, he's slick. He's Mr. Lawyer. He's always maneuvering out of tight spots, but not this time. 
because McNulty has brought the fucking Thor's hammer on his ass. Bullshit. He was like, oh, okay. You want to flex on people in folks' office? Let me tell you how flexing works. And he just worked the system. Worked it. Worked them so, and then hit, hit McNulty with the nicely done. I mean, Nolte hit him with the nicely done. I will say this about Savino. It's crazy. The three years, when they say the three years, no problem. I could do the three. I'm like, damn, these dudes really is hard, man. You got a different respect for it now. Yeah. Winter, summer, winter, summer, winter, summer. Like, three years? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you're you're basically a, a law school tenure? That's a while. And he had, he ate it like it wasn't nothing, and man. And a $5,000 so, fine. Five and the 5000 For 5, shooting a police fine. officer. Right. For the whole thing. Now, I, you know, I give it to you. I never thought that I would seriously think that maybe uh, Savino Bratton, who is one of the, uh, even they say in this one, uh, the junior ranker members of the Barstow organization, would even be in the talks for winning an episode. But if you look at it that way, I could see how you guys make that point. Yo, he won on that shit for sure. And mm-hmm. by the way, uh, this... I guess if you want to count this as a bit of trivia, uh, we do not see Savino again until season five. Yep. This is the and last he, of Savino. And when this. he pops up, we're like, what? You're right. You're right. Yeah, <laughs> like, hold on. Uh, hold on. <laughs> yeah. Hey. It's like, well, I, did, I wonder, did homie actually go do three years <laughs> in real life for something else? Because if he comes back, I'm like, oh, shit. It's, it's Savino. Savino yes. back. It was a blast from the past when he reemerges. So you can put that in all the buckets. You can put that in a trivia and a file list away for later because you really do file it away for later. You don't see him again until season five. Uh, all right, everybody. Uh, that's going to do it for us. Um, thanks and your continued thanks for all the support that you've shown uh, this podcast. Uh, we definitely appreciate it. And, uh, you know, Van put out this call to action um, or you put it out before. I don't know if it's the last episode or before. And then if you have more trivia, like feed us, you know, give us some give us some little bits, some news we can use, some cool shit we can pass along at parties and to all the uh, Wire fans out there. So as always, keep listening to us and keep watching The Wire. We'll see y'all next time. <laughs>